Good morning, my church family. Wonderful to see all of you here this morning. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the rich time we've already experienced here together. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of worship, Father. Thank you for the privilege of prayer. Thank you for the wonderful fellowship we share and the relationships we share in Christ. Father, now as we turn our attention to your word, we do ask, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to lay aside preconceptions. You'd help us to focus fully on what you have to speak to us through your word. Father, may anything that's of Bill Sullivan quickly pass through our minds and our hearts. But Father, may everything that is truly from your word and accurate, Lord, take root in all of our hearts and have an impact on the way we live our lives and the way we trust you. We commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Trust is in the news. Anybody notice that? Or more specifically, it's kind of a lack of trust that's in the news. It seems no one trusts anyone anymore. You hear almost daily about fake news. You know, there's one fun website that I love to visit once in a while called The Babylon Bee. Anybody been to The Babylon Bee? It's a satirical website. And they recently sold a t-shirt with the motto on it that says, fake news you can trust. I kind of like that one. It seems that everybody these days is calling everybody else a liar. And if you think someone's a liar, it pretty much goes without saying that you don't trust them. One recent poll showed that public trust in the government remains near historic lows. Only 20% of Americans today say they can trust government in Washington to do what is right just about always, 4% said that, or most of the time, 16% said that. Just 30% of Americans say they have a great deal or a good amount of trust in the news media, the same poll shows. Another study showed that only 38% of citizens in the United States trusted others in general. The numbers for the United Kingdom and Spain and France were even worse, 30%, 20%, and 19% respectively. Why does it not surprise me that the French were the least trusting people in the world? You've heard of the trust fall? You heard of a trust fall? You know what a trust fall is? It's designed to build confidence and trust in others and promote teamwork. How about this trust fall? Can you see that? It's a whale, and he's falling on this boat. Trust fall, LOL. Or how about this one? So surely, if only a third of Americans are trusting of other people, there must be some people, some categories of people that we do trust. Well, I found something that I think is quite ironic. Celebrities, actors whose job it is to pretend to be someone else, are among the most trusted by Americans. Can you believe that? Tom Hanks, according to one Reader's Digest survey, was the most trusted person in America. So do you think it was Forrest Gump, or do you think it was Saving Private Ryan, or maybe Castaway that made him the most trusted man in America? Judge Judy was trusted by more than half of Americans, 
And that's a higher trustworthiness rating than all nine Supreme Court justices. The same survey showed that Sandra Bullock at 63%, Denzel Washington at 62 Meryl Streep at 61 and Julia Roberts at 57% helped make movie stars among the most trusted professions in America. An older survey about four years ago showed uh, a long list of the most trusted professions. And I realize most of you can't read this unless you're in the front row. So let me hit some of the highlights for you. Technically, it was a survey about the most honest and ethical, but that basically means people you can trust. Any guess what profession was at the top, if you can't read it there? Nurses. Lynn, nurses. Huh? Is Margo here? Margo, nurses were among the most trusted. They were the highest in trust at 82%. Now, other ones rated high were pharmacists, grade school teachers, Jason. They were among the highest, most trusted. Medical doctors, military officers, and police officers. Now, down the list, quite a ways down, actually, was clergy at 47%. Further down the list were nursing home operators at 32%. And then we go down from there. Auto mechanics, 29%. Lawyers and TV reporters at 20%. And then all below 10% at the bottom of the list were car salespeople, members of Congress, and at the very bottom, lobbyists. So maybe these things are not surprising to you. But in one sense, these statistics are a little bit troubling because at the root of Christianity is trust. At the root of our faith is trust, no pun intended. Trust means a firm belief in the reliability, the truth, the ability or strength of someone or something. Now, the Word of God encourages us to trust God, doesn't it? And it doesn't encourage us to trust God just a little. We read in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight now this makes it hard for us as believers in Christ because even though we're believers in Christ we swim in the same culture as all these statistics that I just noted we're in the same untrusting culture as our fellow Americans and the truth is I don't trust government either I don't trust the media I don't trust them to know what's best. I don't trust them to tell the truth. And I don't trust them to have the power to bring about even the good things that sometimes they tell us that they want to do. And unlike a majority of Americans, I certainly have no reason to trust actors either. You know, frankly, uh, I don't care what Tom Hanks or Julia Roberts think about any of the important issues of the day. Why would I put any kind of trust in them? Just because they're famous? Well, the good news is God is famous too. God is famous too. But we cannot be followers of Christ without trust. We don't have to trust the government, the media, or celebrities. But we do have to trust God. It's the basis of our faith. Just one verse referencing this. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So we could say some trust in actors, some trust in nurses, but we could trust in the name of the Lord our God. But let's be honest. Sometimes trusting God is difficult, especially when things are hard, especially when life is hard. Now, several weeks ago in our house church, 
where we're studying the book of Hebrews, the theme of unbelief came up. And out of that came a fairly extensive discussion on what it means to trust God. And as we were talking about that, I remembered a book that we had done 25 years ago in our house church, and it's by an author named Jerry Bridges, and it's called Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. Now, we read the book together as a group. We discussed it. We didn't discuss it. We discussed it, and we all got a lot out of it. All of us enjoyed the book and really learned quite a bit. Well, as it so happens, just a few weeks after we finished the book, Carl and Doris Eason's 19-year-old daughter, Amy, was killed in an automobile wreck. And the day after that, I was sitting next to Carl in his living room, and Carl turned to me, and he said, the things that I learned about trusting God in that study that we did together are helping me sustain and stand strong during this season in the pain and grief that he was experiencing. So life was hurting for Carl and Doris at that moment, but what they had learned about trusting God helped them tremendously in that season. So this morning, and then next time I'm in the pulpit here in a couple weeks, we're going to examine some of the very rich and admittedly sometimes challenging biblical themes that were explored in that book. There were many lessons from Scripture in that book that have stuck with me too through the years as I've had my own hard times in life. There were many lessons from Scripture. And one is the foundation for our trust in God. Now you see the visual on the screen, that's a three-legged stool, okay? Our trust in God is held up by a three-legged stool. And if you take away one leg from a three-legged stool, it'll fall, won't it? It can't hold anything up. It can't sustain you. The three-legged stool of fully trusting God includes these three things, three beliefs we must hang on to to truly trust Him. If we don't accept and fully believe any one of these three, we cannot fully trust God. So one leg is God's sovereignty, and we're going to spend most of this morning looking at that. The second leg is His wisdom, and the third leg is His love. Now, Jerry Bridges wrote, that in the arena of adversity, the Scriptures teach us three essential truths about God, truths we must believe if we are to trust Him in adversity. And they are that God is completely sovereign, God is infinite in wisdom, and God is perfect in love. Now here's another way to express this same truth. God in His love always wills what is best for us. In His wisdom, He always knows what is best. And in His sovereignty, He has the power to bring about what is best. So think about this analogy with me for a moment, this three-legged stool, and how that stool is bound to fall with any one of the individual legs of that stool missing. For example, if we believe that God is wise, okay, we really believe that, and we believe that He's loving, But somehow we don't believe that he's sovereign. That is, he doesn't have the power to bring about what in his wisdom and his love he wants to do. Then how can we fully trust him? If he's not all-powerful, he may just be unable what he really wants to do. Or if we believe he's sovereign, for example, and he really does love us, but maybe he's senile, maybe he's a bumbling old fool. After all, he's been around for a while. 
so his wisdom is somehow lacking, then he might be able to do whatever he wants, but he doesn't really know or understand what is best to do. That's removing the wisdom leg of the stool. Or how about that he is all-powerfully sovereign, that he is perfect in wisdom, but he doesn't really and truly love us. He doesn't really and truly want what is best for us. Well, at that point, then I think his power is nothing but scary. I mean, if he really is all-powerful and he doesn't love us, wow. If he doesn't love us, why would he do what's best for us, even when he's able? So you can see we need all three legs of this stool to fully trust God, to find him trustworthy. Let's think about this idea for a moment related to people, okay? We trust people. We trust some people. We don't trust other people. There are certainly categories of people that I definitely do not trust. There are individuals I do not trust, but there are individuals that I do trust. I trust, for example, my fellow elders. I trust my close friends. I trust my wife. I trust my siblings. There are other people that I trust. But as we think about this in relation to people, there are levels of trust, aren't there? None of these reach the same level as our trust in God. Let me give you an example. I trust Jim Garrett, okay? He's my friend. He's my brother. He's my fellow elder. I trust his biblical knowledge. If I have a question about Scripture, Jim is one of my first people that I go to. If I have a car problem, I'll go to Jim. Jim knows a lot about cars, and I trust his advice. I trust him to be there and support me when life is kind of kicking my butt. Jim's there for me. He's my friend. I trust him. I know Jim loves me, and I trust in his wisdom from his years of experience. There are many things that I trust in his ability to be able to do. Jim is a trustworthy man, but though Jim does love me, his love for me is not perfect. Though Jim is wise, I'm going to tell you something that may come as a shock to you, Jim doesn't know everything. I'm sorry to reveal that to you. Strike that from the recording online. And Jim really is able to do many things that I cannot do. But the truth is, if I have a computer problem, I'm not going to Jim. Jim comes to me. I go to Bruce. So in some respects, we can trust people. And again, there are people that I trust deeply. I'm confident and secure in their love for me. I'm aware of the things that they do know about, and I'm not afraid to ask them about those things because I trust them in those things. And I know there are things they are able to do. They have, if you will, they have the power to do those things. But that love, that wisdom, that power in the case of the people we trust are not infinite. They're finite. So I can say I trust Jim Garrett, I trust Jim Grinnell, I trust the rest of my fellow elders, and I do but I trust each of them differently because they are creatures and they are thus finite. They are not all-powerful. They are not infinite or perfect in wisdom. They are not perfect in love. I can say, for example, that I trust my wonderful wife of almost 39 years, and I really do, but my trust cannot be wholehearted, as we read in Proverbs 3 a few minutes ago. I'm confident in my wife's love for me, but you know what? She can't fix the cable when it's out. She can't do everything. She is not able to do everything. There are things that, in her love for me, my wife even desperately might want to do, but she's not able 
My trust is as wholehearted as the limitations of the ones that I trust can allow. But here's the thing, folks. With God, there are no limits. With God, there are no limits. That's why He is completely and absolutely trustworthy. This morning, I want to take most of the rest of this message looking at the ideas of God's sovereignty in Scripture. Because if you think about it, that's, for many of us, the hardest thing to trust in. It's a crucial component, however, of that three-legged stool of trust. One reason God's sovereignty is hard for us to fully believe and understand is because our idea of love and what's truly good and what's truly bad is colored by the veil of sin that infects all of us, even those of us who are in Christ. So our limited, our flawed understanding of these things might unconsciously cause us to somehow undermine God's sovereignty, his total control over the universe, over every detail of our lives, over our world, over nature and people's hearts. Several years ago, there was a popular book by a rabbi named Harold Kushner. The title, and it was very popular, it was read by a lot of people. The title was When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And Kushner basically chooses to believe in a loving God who is powerless in some circumstances, unable to do certain things or stop certain things. In other words, because he thinks that a loving God cannot possibly allow bad things to happen, this rabbi made the choice to remove that sovereign leg of the three-legged stool that we're looking at this morning. And that's how he comes to grips with disasters, for example, natural disasters. He writes that insurance companies refer to earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and various other natural disasters as what? They call them acts of God, right? In your insurance policy, that's what it says. And then he wrote in his book, he wrote this. He said, I consider that, calling these things acts of God, I consider that a case of using God's name in vain. I don't believe that an earthquake that kills thousands of innocent victims without reason is an act of God. It is an act of nature. Nature is morally blind without values. It churns along, following its own laws, not caring when or what gets in the way. So essentially, he's saying that God is not in control of nature. Are we really ready to go there, folks? Think about the opposite of trusting God when you don't believe that. Are we re- do you really want to go there and say, okay, God loves us and he's all wise because of that, Well, he just apparently doesn't have the power to do that. Do we really want to go there? Think about the implications for a minute. To somehow think that we're defending God's love in an earthquake, a hurricane, a wildfire. Is God really powerless to do anything about it? Or does he, in his wisdom and even in his love, somehow cause or allow these kinds of things? There's a lot of Christians who are doing that for God today. They're trying to defend his love, so they may be well-meaning, but they're trying to do that by reducing his sovereignty, reducing his omnipotence, what Scripture teaches about our all-powerful God. They're unwilling to accept the fact that God is working in hard things because they don't understand how he's working. So consequently, they've chosen to substitute the doctrine of chance 
for the doctrine of divine providence, which is a subset of God's sovereignty that tells us that God is in control. There's one Christian writer that Jerry Bridges cites in his book, and he says she speaks of her pain as being utterly frustrating to God. And she gives thanks to God for being her devoted, caring, frustrated Heavenly Father. Well, I don't know about you, but that gives me no comfort at all. To think that God can be frustrated by something that's happening in my life. Frustrated? The Bible tells us God is never frustrated. He's always accomplishing His purposes. And as we'll explore more fully in a couple of weeks when we look at the uh, other two legs of the stool, those plans are for our good and they are for His glory. Always, folks. Always. Without fail. Now, that's, these are hard truths, but I tell you, it gives me no comfort if the maker of the universe deeply loves me and he's all wise, but somehow finds some things beyond his control. That gives me no comfort at all. But for now, as we explore the sovereignty of God, let's pause for a moment and let's hear carefully what the word of God tells us about this leg of the three-legged stool. God is never frustrated. He does as he wills, whatever he wants. We read that in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, where it says, He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? We read in the Psalms, first with Psalm 115, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. We read in Psalm 148, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling His Word. I don't know about you folks, that seems like God's taking credit for, what does it say? Stormy wind, snow and mist, fire and hail. It says fulfilling His Word. God's taking credit for those things. We read in Isaiah chapter 14, This is the plan devised against the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? As for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? And we read in Isaiah chapter 45, this is a hard one. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, folks. He says, I form light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. So we can let Scripture say what it says, or we can try to explain it away. We read in Lamentations chapter 3. That's supposed to be, I think, 38. Is not the mouth of the Most High, is it not from the mouth of the Most High, that both calamities and good things come? So again, you know, these are hard truths to wrap our minds around. But again, I think it's because we have a difficult time seeing calamities, seeing disaster, as these passages say, as somehow being for our good, somehow being as part of God's plan. We can't see this because our minds are corrupted by sin and because, as God tells us through the prophet Isaiah in 55, he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
can we rest in that when his ways are hard? That's a challenge. Admittedly, that's a challenge. Can we trust God when his thoughts are totally undiscernible to us, his creatures? That's what it means to rest in him, to rest on that leg of the three-legged stool of trust. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He has a plan, and it's a plan for good. Nothing is by accident. Our suffering, whatever the earthly source, has meaning and purpose in God's plan. Think about this. If there is anything at all in all of life that can happen outside of God's sovereign control, then we can't trust Him. We can't trust Him. If He, can't, if, if, he, just, he just can't do it. We can't trust Him. If there's anything in all of life, he can be all loving. But if he can't do what his love wants to do, and if his purpose for us can be broken or held back somehow, then we can't trust him. Even beyond his acts in nature. Think about this. This is another hard truth. God moves in the hearts of people. He moves in the hearts of those who know him, and he even moves in the hearts of those who don't know him to accomplish his plans. Jerry Bridges writes that he permits, God permits for reasons known only to himself, people to act contrary to and in defiance of his revealed will. But he never, never permits them to act contrary to his sovereign will. Consider these scriptures as support for this idea. Proverbs chapter 16, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 21, 30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. And Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? God's sovereignty is the stable, immovable rock that we must trust in, we must cling to, especially in the midst of suffering. Our life circumstances are no accident, folks. They may be intended by people. They may be intended by the enemy of our souls as evil. But we know from the Word that even evil is held in God's all-powerful hand. We see in Scripture that evil cannot touch His children unless he permits it. Surely the crucifixion of Jesus had to be among the most evil acts in human history. Yet what did Jesus say to Pilate about that? We read this in John chapter 19. Pilate said, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power? Pilate's saying, I have power either to free you or to crucify you. And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. The problem we sometimes have is that it seems like God's not in control because we can't see it. So that's what it feels like to us. It's difficult to see God working through secondary causes, through frail and sinful human beings. But as we've already seen from the Word, God superintends both the bad and the good He's not looking the other way when something bad happens to us. 
He's not surprised when we face adversity. He's in control of that adversity, directing it to his glory and to our good. We read in Genesis, for example, how Joseph's brothers, you know that story, they sold him into slavery, didn't they? Clearly an evil act, okay? And Scripture presents it as such. Yet, after years of suffering because of that act, what did Joseph do? Joseph was able to say to those same brothers who betrayed him, sold him into slavery, caused years of suffering on his behalf, he was able to say to them in Genesis chapter 45, verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. And then a few chapters later, he said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Think about that. Joseph saw the hand of God in sovereignly directing all of the events of his life to accomplish God's purposes in his life and in the life of Joseph's family and indeed all Israel and all Egypt as well. And all that, all of these things were set in motion by a freely chosen evil act by Joseph's brothers. In our lives, we all have plans. And sometimes when we make plans, we make contingency plans. We have a plan A and we have a plan B, right? Because there are often, and we expect these things, there's unexpected, we expect the unexpected, right? There are forced changes of plans. It's not so with God. It's not so with God. God is never caught off guard. God is never surprised, never frustrated by something unexpected. God does not have a plan B because he always works out plan A. Bridges writes, it's easy to trust God when a process of events turns out as we would desire, though even here our faith often falters during the process until we know the outcome. So the question we have to face is this, is God sovereign only in the quote-unquote good circumstances of our lives? It's easy for us to see that, but in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14, we read, when times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, consider God has made one as well as the other. You know, we've just barely scratched the surface this morning looking at that first leg of the three-legged stool, God's sovereignty. Yet scripture is clear that God is trustworthy. We can trust him. He works sovereignly in circumstances, in nature, in the hearts of people. He uses all of these things to accomplish his purpose for our lives. Yet amazingly, he does it in such a way that people make their own decisions and they carry out their plans by their own free choices. How can that be? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. That's God. His ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I don't know how he can take those two things that in our finite minds are mutually exclusive and he can make them work together. But he does because scripture teaches both of these things. What's more, even when God uses the evil choices of people to accomplish his purposes, he holds those people responsible 
for those choices. We see this throughout the New Testament when God used evil nations to judge his people and to bring them back to repentance. And then he judged that nation for what they did to the nation of Israel. We see it again and again. We balk at God's sovereignty over the decisions and actions of people. Such a concept of God's sovereignty seems to many people to destroy the free will of man and make him only a puppet on God's stage. But consider this, if God is not sovereign in the decisions and actions of other people as they affect us, then there is a whole major area of our lives where we cannot trust God, where we are left, so to speak, to fend for ourselves. And that's what I said at the beginning when we were talking about God's sovereignty over nature. Do you really want to go there? Well, God is somehow not able to do that, that he somehow doesn't have the power to control nature. Well, in Scripture we read, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This was written by King Solomon. And in King Solomon's day, we don't really get, we we think of, uh, what we think of dictators today is what kings used to be. Absolute power. Okay? In Solomon's day, the king's power was absolute. He didn't have to deal with a congress. He didn't have to deal with a fickle voting public. He was never up for re-election. He was sovereign. The king could do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, however. Yet we read here in Proverbs 21.1 that God turns the king's heart. Just as you channel a stream of water to make it go where you want to go, where you want it to go. And the reasoning here in this passage of Scripture is from greater to lesser. The idea being that if God can move the heart of a sovereign, then surely he can move the rest of us peons. We're not sovereign anyway to begin with. God is never at a loss. God is never at a loss because he can't find someone to cooperate with him in carrying out his plans. The best you and I can do to try to convince somebody of something, to do something, is to persuade or maybe argue, and we might even be able to coerce a little bit, but we cannot move a person's will. Yet the Word of God tells us that God can. In Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, he said to the gathered crowd, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, It was part of God's plan. We know that. God knew about it in advance. He wasn't surprised. But here's the part I want you to notice. The you here. Jesus said this was according to the knowledge and plan of God, right? You crucified. You. Includes the free moral choices of real people. The word consistently shows people making real, genuine choices of their own will. And there's never a suggestion in Scripture of people being mindless puppets moved by divine strings like a puppeteer would or like our puppeteers with their hands in the, in the puppet, right? Or by remote control like a drone. The selling of Joseph into slavery was a malicious, evil act by his brothers even though that act accomplished the sovereign purpose of God. So the Bible teaches both the sovereignty of God and the free moral choices of man with equal emphasis. And it doesn't make any attempt to reconcile those contradictions. That's why we struggle with it. 
because we don't understand how they can be reconciled. But here's where I want to leave us this morning. Where does this leave us with God's sovereignty? How can we exercise our trust in His sovereignty? Prayer. Prayer. Think about it. Prayer is the most tangible expression we have of our trust in God. The truth that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and the Lord can move it wherever he wills, that should prompt prayer. It shouldn't prompt fatalism. It should prompt us to pray. Okay, God, you control the king's heart. I think that this ought to happen this way. And I, you know, so I'm praying about it that you would move the king's heart because I can't do anything. I can't coerce him. I can't convince him. I can't even get to him. The truth that God controls circumstances, the truth that God controls nature should promote prayer. By its very nature, prayer assumes that God is in charge and he can do something. If God's not sovereign, and again, let's think of it from the other way around. If God is not sovereign, then prayer is pointless. Why pray at all? If God is not able to do what we ask him to do, prayer is pointless. Suffering is without meaning. And I've said this in our house church several times. I am so glad that I learned here in this church a theology of suffering. Suffering has meaning. It has purpose in the life of a believer. But if God's not sovereign, suffering has no meaning because we have no assurance that God can do anything about what we pray about. So God's sovereignty, along with his wisdom and love, is the absolute foundation of our trust in him. And prayer as an expression of that trust. It's the expression, the primary expression, meant to be the primary expression of our trust in Him. So if we stop there, we've spent most of the second half of this morning's message looking at God's sovereignty, His omnipotence, His ability to do anything He pleases. That knowledge alone of God would be terrifying. It would be terrifying if that's all we knew about God. But let's remember the three-legged stool, and we're going to develop this again in a couple weeks. The things we must believe if God is to be trustworthy. God is not only sovereign, folks, but the good news is He is perfect in love. And He is infinite in wisdom. And that's what we're going to develop next time, in two weeks, in part two of Trustworthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for what Your Word tells us about Your character what your word tells us about what you are able to do, things above and beyond what we can truly understand, but your word is clear that you are able to do these things. Your word is clear that you are sovereign. Your word is clear that you are able to do anything you please and nothing can frustrate your plans and your purposes. Father, it's hard for us to rest in when we're in the middle of pain. That's a difficult truth, Father, for us to wrap our minds around when we're hurting. But Lord, we want to be a people who trust you. We want to be a people who trust you when things are good, and we want to be a people that trust you when things are hard. So we pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd help us wrap our minds more and more around your sovereignty, around your perfect wisdom, around your infinite love. And Father, come to you in prayer as an expression of our trust in you, because you are a great and mighty God who is all-wise, who loves us infinitely, Lord, and we're thankful that we have the privilege of being your children. 
Bless us now, Father. We ask for your Holy Spirit to work these things deep into our spirits, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.